Hi, listeners. In this interview, we had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Laura Kastner, who is an expert in the fields of child, adolescent, and pediatric psychology. Dr. Kastner's life work has been in providing families and leaders of young people with support and specific tools for navigating the many emotionally challenging moments that are a normal part of learning, growing, parenting, and coaching. To start our conversation, Dr. Kastner explains the neural remodeling process that occurs in the human brain from adolescence through the mid to late 20s and the behaviors that are associated with that time in life. We talk about emotion regulation as it relates to athlete development, performance, and long-term health. She shares the acronym CALM that gives coaches, parents, and any leader of young people a specific strategy for working through emotionally charged moments in a way that facilitates social-emotional learning and enhances relationships. Dr. Kastner also shares insight into the prevalence of anxiety and depression in young people today. And while this is a societal trend that goes far beyond sport, Dr. Kastner helps us better understand the ways in which sport can both contribute to this trend as well as strategies that coaches can implement to enhance mental health and facilitate emotional flourishing in the young student athletes we're working with. Thanks for listening. From Capitol Hill in Seattle, I'm Marcia Daniel with the University of Washington Center for Leadership and Athletics. We're here today with Dr. Laura Kastner, who is a clinical professor in both the psychology and the psychiatry and behavioral sciences department at the University of Washington. Dr. Castor is an expert in the fields of child, adolescent, and pedi pediatric psychology. In addition to her many academic article publications, Dr. Castor has authored five books, including The Seven Year Stretch, How Families Work Together to Grow Through Adolescence, The Launching Years, Strategies for Parents from Senior Year to College Life, Getting to Calm, Cool-Headed Strategies for Parenting Tweens and Teens, Wise-Minded Parenting, Seven Essentials for Raising Successful Tweens and Teens, and her latest book, The Early Years, Cool-Headed Strategies for Raising Happy, Caring, and Independent 3-7 to Year Olds. Dr. Castor, thank you for taking time out of a busy clinical and speaking schedule to talk with us today. Thank you. You have a way of describing the neural remodeling process that occurs in young brains as their body is preparing for adulthood. Can you please tell us about that process and the types of behaviors that are associated with that time in life? Yeah, a very exciting uh, piece of research came out in 1998. It took a while to make it to prime time so that parents and the general public uh, certainly are finding out about this. But what was discovered by brain scans brought into Bethesda, you know, NIH, by the drugs, these normal teenagers, was lo and behold, watching uh, these kids develop over time, they noted that there was a significant remodeling of the prefrontal cortex between 13 and 25, because they followed these kids, these young teenagers through the 20s. Uh, and the prefrontal cortex, I like to describe as the executive suite of um, thinking processes, planning, reasoning, weighing uh, pros and cons in decision-making, and uh, self-regulation, self-control. So they're pretty important functions. And this whole part of the brain is reconfigured at about age 13. There's this pruning uh, process. Uh, imagine it going from the jungle of Borneo <laughs> to a sculpted sort of manicured bonsai, because that's what it looks like. It's like the pruning of a tree. And so it's sort of um, you get down to what you use, and then you build more brain connections, synapses, over the next 10 years based on learning and experience. Mm -hmm. 
So what was is probably most important now after 20 years is knowing how much slower the development is of the self-regulation circuit. So by 15, actually, some of these mental uh, cerebral functions are mature, like spatial and analytic um, problem solving. But 15 to 25, it is a slow, slow uh, trajectory to the mature self-regulation section. So what was often um, attributed to raging hormones in the last century, we now know is part and parcel of this brain remodeling process. And during this time, kids are going to be more impulsive. So the implications overall are that teenagers, by and large, more often than not, have increased uh, reactivity moodiness, more argumentativeness, uh, and definitely more risk-taking and impulsivity. Okay. Part of growing as an athlete is learning how to manage and leverage stress and anxiety in competition settings. Uh, Many of our listeners are working with younger athletes who haven't yet had opportunities to fully develop their emotion regulation skills. What can coaches teach the athletes they're working with to help them develop these skills around regulating emotions and regulating their level of physiological activation? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing is to understand teen development and know that wholesome, wonderful, terrific kids don't have different brains. So we really need a tremendous amount of patience because you still get these adults saying, I thought I told you, and didn't you think about how that would impact somebody else, and you didn't make good choices. And those of us in science would say, they didn't make a choice. That was an impulse. The only way you make a choice is to slow way down and have many years of experience with this, you know, sort of weighing uh, costs and benefits and risk in decision making. And so part of it, we just need to know, we need to be patient as we help them slow down, slow down to make a decision. So when you think about an athlete, they're revved up, they're running around the field, you know, um, when they might trip somebody on purpose, that was an impulse. They need a consequence. They need to think through it. They need to think about how they're going to roll back, you know, some of their impulses when they're angry or when they feel betrayed or when they feel wronged. Um, but to make them malevolent or evil instead of, mm, boy, you need a stronger self-control circuit is, is, is not well thought out by the adults interacting with them. Because I, I find parents are often saying bad choices, and I'm going, mm. they didn't make a choice because they were flooding and that when we're in the flooding zone, adults, wise, very smart adults, in a fit of passion, can say things they regret, do things they regret. So the fact that we're sort of demonizing a 13-year-old for tripping somebody is, is kind of like our problem. Mm-hmm. We get to make it wrong. We get to make it not, you know, not the right thing to do. But we need to even change how we, we talk about it and think about it, not just how we interact with the child about it. And the thing to know is that when they're, when children are, when all humans are revved up, you know, they have a lot of stress on board and they're going into 100, 135, you know, beats a minute, they're automatically going to be more diffused and, and confused and sort of blunted in their thinking process. So a lot of what we talk about is slow down, get your heart rate down so that you can think better and make better choices. Mm-hmm. So adults need to do it. We, the, the teen, the child needs to do it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is just slow down and think through it. And for us to think, you know, we've, we often talk about the 10,000 hours, you know, become an athlete or a chess master or, you know, good construction uh, worker or whatever. And I think we should think, well, they need 10,000 hours. They need about 
you know, 13 to 23. To develop those emotion regulation skills. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. some more than others, right? So if you have a child that comes from a traumatic background, they're going to have a lot more triggers for problems of impulsivity. Also, if they have certain kinds of, you know, genetics, ADHD, and a lot of athletes have ADHD in in a good way, you know, they have a strong engine and a big drive. Um, So uh, they're going to have maturing brains that um, actually... Um, fully developed not until 27, 28. Wow. You know, the average person is has a, a well-developed circuit by 25. And then certain people are just more impulsive and, you know, more high drive. And so those kids are going to need more work, too, to slow down and make better decisions. So... Well, in your book, Getting to Calm, you provide tools and strategies for families as they're negotiating the many challenging emotional moments that are a natural part of growing and parenting. And as coaches, we certainly aren't going to have the same frequency of these emotionally charged situations with athletes as their parents would, but we still need to have the tools to work through these moments in ways that will enhance the Mm -hmm. coach-athlete relationship and foster trust. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the core practices we use in our coach development work that came out of Dr. Julie McCleary's research is framing communication. What other tools, or as you call them, and I love this term, good moves, Mm -hmm. can coaches use to negotiate those moments when both the athlete and the coach are physiologically activated? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the first one that's just pure science and not about any particular person, it's all human beings, is to understand the science that when somebody pushes our buttons or a situation pushes, we get triggered, uh, our heart rate will soar. And we won't be able to think as, as quickly. And that's when we might uh, use expletives. We might be shaming or blaming or cruel or abusive because we've just lost our temper. That's what that means. I lost my temper. I lost my cool. I lost, my, you know, I flipped my lid. There are all these phrases that have to do with our heart rate soaring because as we evolved as these scrawny little hominids over the millennia, it was... Um, the most important thing is to survive. So that that amygdala is what it is. It's that little structure behind the eyes that's about 100 million years old from an evolutionary point of view, is that that needed to be the strongest because we all need to fight and flight and and flee uh, when uh, there's a tiger on on the hill. So that's still in our brain. So this teenager that just, you know, tripped his, you know, his opponent on the soccer field or whatever, that pushed my button because most athletes don't do that. What's his problem? So I can have my button pushed and go out of line. He's going to be carded. He could ruin the game. We could lose the finals, whatever. Um, and so I can flash with how dare that demon child do that. And that's just you know my old brain just being triggered. So every, every human, every spouse, every coach, every teacher is uh, well prepared to work with the youth that push our buttons like this when they know how to get their own cool. So I have an acronym. I said, you know, firefighters, policemen, emergency room docs, they all have protocols, so they have an emergency. They don't have to think on their feet. They just know, use the protocol. So my protocol is CALM, C-A-L-M. So the first thing is that if we, we can feel the heart rate go up and we're really mad at that athlete, we got to get our heart rate down. We have to get our heart rate down or we will not access our prefrontal cortex. We actually know from brain research that it, uh, when we're really hooked and really mad, it goes to the thalamus and straight to the amygdala, and then you know our uh, whole body gets ready for surge, uh, fight or flight. 
it bypasses the brief prefrontal. We can't think. We adults, as smartest adults on the planet, can't think if we're triggered. So that's just science. We know that from brain scans, right? So the only way to access our thinking brain to make good decisions about how to interact with the athlete is to get that heart rate down below 100. So first, don't talk. You know, I would say, don't just do something. That's hard for Stand there. Absolutely. But the first time out goes to the coach. Absolutely. We all know videotapes of ourselves that we pay thousands of dollars to keep off YouTube. The, the, you know, as coaches, as adults working with youth. Just we pay a lot of money to those expletives, that shaming, that horrible behavior. That's because we didn't know about the protocol of cold. Well, the protocol is C-A-L-M. Cool off. Cool down. Assess your options is A. L, always listen and connect with empathy first mm-hmm. before you tell them you know, what the consequence is or you try to think through uh, what's going to happen. And then M is map a plan. So I'd say any coach that is triggered by what the athlete has done is first don't do anything. Say, mm, okay, I'm going to walk over here. I'm going to model getting my own cool, and I will talk to you later, probably. Because it takes a while to cool down. So assess the options. It would be things like, should I talk now, later, him and the other athlete? Should I consult with my another coach first? We all have options for how to problem solve. So first, even uh, evaluating the merits of plan A, B, C, we're automatically in the prefrontal cortex. Just by forcing ourselves to not just say, I'm going to go talk to him. I say, what are my options? You're going to think better about your your approach to the to the athlete and the listen with empathy is first you could just say so what are you thinking what were you feeling what was that emotion if you scroll back what do you wish you had done differently you know we all lose it that could be the empathy part we all lose it so now I just want to see how you're thinking through it right that would be the because you can always give your lecture you can talk about what you think is best you can give the consequence you can do that later mm-hmm. but you can you'll You'll miss the opportunity to first make the bridge of listening to the athlete. What do you think went, went, went off there? Right? By doing that, that's really going to strengthen that relationship. Uh, strengthen the relationship, strengthen their emotional and social learning. Mm-hmm. There's even research that shows that kids that learn how to identify uh, nuanced negative emotions, not just I'm mad and sad, but I was threatened, I was scared, I was annoyed, I saw him as an obstacle, I, you know, uh, you know, I was um, confused, uh, I was jealous. We know that kids that learn how to identify those negative emotions later have lower ne- depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. They've actually done research where they can look a year later and see the ones that learn this and ones that don't. So this is not like, oh, fluffy stuff, identify feelings. It, the way the researchers look at it is that by um, the lower brain is this surging emotion. And by naming it, you're usually going into the right prefrontal cortex. So you're, you're using that part of your frontal lobe to identify the emotion. And then you're shifting to the left hemisphere to actually put sentences together. Mm-hmm. So by first listening to the athlete, so what you think went on? Well, I just saw red. I don't know. He's in front of me and I just raged. You went, okay. So what are you thinking now? What do you wish you'd done? Were you aware that you were starting to track that opponent and really rage on him in your mind? Were you starting to think of him in it? Or was it just that moment? Just get him to talk, 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 talk. Because when you're not shaming, you know, you're saying, hey, that happens. Just let's really learn from it, right? Mm-hmm. How, what, what goes on that you, you had that rage thing turn on? 
then that that person starting to use their brain because they're not shamed or put in the you know in the dunce cap yet you know um, and that's the learning phase and then you can map a plan okay well you know this is what you're not going to be in two games I'm going to meet with you and talk to you about what goes on in your head when you this thing happens or something there'll be a plan but you you don't want to miss that moment of listening with empathy. So what I'm hearing you saying is that by for us as coaches, by engaging calmly with the athletes in those moments, that's actually going to facilitate some of that neural mapping that you described yes. in the beginning. Facilitate positive yes. 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 adaptations. Just anything that helps us use our prefrontal cortex to deal with feelings, okay, is what we call top-down. So the bottom up is anytime our athletes are, are misbehaving according to us in any way, little bullying, aggressive teasing, bad language, it's all this area that, mm, I'd like to see some changes there as a coach, right? So we want to support them because a lot of that is just pure emotional, you know, impulse. And rather than shaming and giving, you know, punishments, we could say, mm, not, that is not part of success. We got to work on overriding that. Because that's just coming up and you're just impulsive and doing things and getting you in a lot of trouble and are not part of the winner's circuit. So it's sort of like a carrot stick. That's going to get you in trouble. You don't want it. I don't want it. Your goal is to be in the winner's circle. I want that for you. So we got to strengthen that top-down circuit. And the way to do that is by talking about it mm-hmm. without the shame basket, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I like the way you said the first time out goes to the coaches. <laughs> That's a a powerful image Mm -hmm. right there. I want to ask you about the prevalence of anxiety disorders in tweens and teens. Mm -hmm. We know that a certain level of anxiety is a normal reaction to life stressors, but we also know that there has been a steady rise in anxiety disorders in tweens and teens in recent years. So two parts to this question. What do you see as causes of this increase in anxiety disorders in tweens and teens? Mm -hmm. Well, to be really... Uh, specific. There's definitely been a rise in depression, definitely been a ri- rise in uh, suicidal behavior, especially uh, uh, even higher in girls than boys, although they've both gone up, and especially for the younger ones. The stress surveys are off the charts, but there needs to be a comorbidity study for anxiety, so we don't actually know okay. that they've gone up. I'm sure they have, but just to be technical, as a PhD, that's how we are. <laughs> um, but um, I I have a lot of thoughts. There's This is all theory. But uh, if you do a 30-year review, just starting with the, you know, really scope up, we used to have stores closed at night, stores closed on Sunday. We used to have three channels, and then it went all blurry. You couldn't watch TV. Um, yeah, talked on the phone as long as you could get away with it, but, you know, your parents usually got down on that. So there was better sleep. There was more natural, what I would call, default settings for better habits. Right. So now moving all the way through to social media, we have a 24-7 market space Right, that you can be working all the time or emailing all the time. You have social media available all the time. Uh, 40% of college kids sleep with their phone, leave it on, and respond. So we've got a complete wreckage of sleep architecture, which is a huge part of mental health. Yeah, you know, young people should sleep about nine hours optimally or eight and they're down to six you know in high school so the you know by college college admissions people are saying why are you sending us these wrecks of kids right and it's you know there's this yes and why are you pressuring them so much with these mm-hmm. high criteria for, for getting in during my career 40 years uh, when I used to see little kids in elementary school uh, if they start to have anxiety 
they have things like I'm afraid of, you know, monsters under my bed, I'm scared of mom dying by dawn, and all these classic things. Never heard about college. Now, kids will say, I'm worried about college in fourth grade and fifth grade. You know, why do you need to worry about middle school? Why do you worry about grades? Well, I've got to get into a good college. I'm going, this is the new bugabear, right? And it didn't exist one and a half generations ago. I, I guarantee you, people didn't talk about it in the same way. They wanted to go to college, but it wasn't like going to bed at night, how am I going to get in college? And you know the impact of young athletes who are all fantasizing a scholarship. First of all, there are 2,000 colleges, right? We act like there's only so many. They don't need to all live for the Olympics, you know, in fifth grade. It's not good for them any more than thinking about getting to a certain medical school. They need to be engaged in healthy activities of childhood. Athlete, you know, athletics are a big part of that, but not the end all and be all. And I, I think what happens is if there's, you know, 1% of success and 99% not, you know, with the talk about the, the smaller window for success, more and more kids are thinking that they've got to make A's, they've got to have APs, they've got to get a scholarship or whatever for college. And it just makes a sort of like a, you know, eye of the needle for are you a winner or a loser? Right? Because it's more nuanced than that. You have good days, bad days, you know, you can make a couple of B's, whatever. And now they go, What do you mean? I gotta make a three A to make it into, you know, University of Washington. And so what happens is when you spend all this time uh, again with those amygdala hijacks of worrying and rumination, you know, oh no, I didn't make it to the A team or whatever, um, you're gonna have that is a minor form of trauma. Right, because that amygdala is not supposed to be going off all day. It should be every now and then because you needed to sprint from a predator. But what's happening is we have essentially the same bodies we had as a hundred thousand years ago. It's definitely fifty thousand, right? We do a lot of different things with it, but we we need sleep, we need good nutrition, we need rest. Right? We need to be with people a lot, looking at faces with a laughter and love and joy and awe of nature. We need to be in green nature more. So what's happened is we keep discovering in nature, this is so ironic, oh, guess what? You need more sleep. Oh, guess what? We need to be plant-based. Oh, we're supposed to be sweating and exercise an hour a day. Oh, guess what? We're supposed to be loving each other a whole lot more in real time. We have to discover what we should know because we've got the same bodies <laughs> yeah. from 100,000 years ago. So um, all of that said is that we have changed our lifestyles hugely in two generations. And it's, it's too simplistic just to blame it on social media, which is kind of big these days. And I get it. Teens go on to curated sites of Instagram, and in the middle of the night, they think everybody's a winner and I'm a loser. They're at the good party. And my body's not right. My... You know, my successes aren't in the in the um, realm that I want them to be, and then they get more depressed and and anxious, and that didn't used to go on. You know, they might look at a Cosmo or a, you know a Sports Illustrated and have some fantasies that they're a loser. But the power of media is that it keeps these jolts of both entertainment and dopamine, you know, in hot supply if you game or you're going on to shopping sites that turn you on or you know whatever. Um, or Instagram feed, which can go on forever. And then you're scared by not being in the winter circle, however you, you know, conspire that in your brain to be. So I know that social media is part of this, but I think we need to think in a bigger, just almost in a bigger way, what we're not doing that we, we did versions of 
in an okay way up until the, probably the, the 80s. Mm-hmm. And then it got way worse around 2008 when social media mm-hmm. um, uh, cranked up. So I feel like the answer is know our bodies, know the science of the body, and know that we need to set up default systems as parents and as communities to make the goodies not as available. So turn off the router. Uh, we could set it up. Obviously, we can always reset it, but it should be almost like a thermostat go off at certain times so that we can ensure good behavior. Sort of like having a 401k. It ensures that we save money. We're built for a different time, so we almost have to protect ourselves from our vulnerabilities of high dopamine activities mm-hmm. because it's all around us. Processed foods, alcohol, media, drugs, all these maladaptive coping mechanisms for dealing with stress. And yet we have adaptive mechanisms like go be with a friend, go walk a dog, go swimming, um, plan, a, plan a fun scavenger hunt, uh, go sleeping more, do your art, do your writing, do some reading. We have healthy adaptive approaches, but we've got all these low-lying fruit of like, oh, let's do 12 hours of a Netflix. Mm-hmm. So we've got to protect ourselves from just the way our brains are. Yeah. Well, so my, my second part of that question was as leaders who were part of these young people's lives for up to six to seven days a week um, and looking at specific steps we can take to support the young student athletes we're working with and bigger picture work against this disturbing societal trend. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I hear you saying that maybe we should help them set boundaries or at least mm-hmm. be educating these young mm-hmm. student athletes on why physical activity is, is good for them and, mm-hmm. um, being part of team sport, having that community be part of their mm-hmm. lives. And are, there, are there other steps that we can take to... Work? You know, I what I think is powerful in... Uh, this started happening about 15 years ago with suicide prevention, and then we started having peer counseling or peer support groups and things like that in high schools, is I noticed that upperclassmen... Uh, or older students in high school, or you could, you know, some of the older athletes on teams in colleges are probably the ideal people mm-hmm. to lead with, you know, a coach in the background because they, otherwise it's preachy and we get, we preach at them enough anyway. I mean, we can present the information, but I think that the choices and the approaches will probably be made by the group. And, I, you know, one of my favorite um, examples of, of healthy support is when they change passwords to their Instagram or, 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 you know, Facebook or whatever during finals and then don't tell your friend until after finals are done. And it's like, we know how bad we are, so let's band together and prevent our badness. And when they do it together... So if athletes together came up with, okay, how are we going to ensure we get our sleep? Okay, let's eat together. And then they can get together and talk about let's, what good things are we going to do so that we can promise we'll do two hours of that favorite Netflix and then we're going to go to the park. So the, I think there'll be healthy habits that they'll want to do together. You know, it's sort of like AA, you know, they do it together and they're supporting each other. And boy, that's probably part of the magic. So I think we'll want to support them making their own choices. Yeah, well, I really like that idea of peer support. And two of the other core practices that we use are shared decision making um, and allowing space, meaning the coach needs to back off and allow some space. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a good example of how we can allow space mm-hmm. and allow the athletes to work together in mm-hmm. that shared decision making. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Kastner, I heard you mention that one of your favorite topics to talk about is emotional flourishing, so I thought we could end with that topic today. We use a lot of social-emotional skill building in our coach development curriculum, and uh, as sport coaches, we're of course, we're promoting physical activity and physical health. 
you emphasize the relationship between physical health and emotional health. In one of your talks, you said there is no health without emotional health. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that it's not uncommon for people to separate the two and think of them independently. Can you please speak to the interrelationship between physical and emotional health and how they depend on one another? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we. I often look, uh, use a stool as an example with three legs, and you really don't want to do it without one of the legs. <laughs> and you know the uh, academic and the uh, the physical. Well, if you put those together, and social emotional, they're all legs of this thing. And if one is uh, curtailed or one is a foreshortened, it's going to compromise the other ones, and they uh, they really are inextricable. I mean that the social and emotional ability to handle your feelings, understand what somebody else is thinking, be able to change your behavior based on somebody else's feelings. Uh, having empathy, being able to read their minds and, and then change your own behavior. We know that the time of the loner, stellar athlete or Einstein or whatever, it's of the last century. Everything's done on teams these days. You have to be able to work well with others. Right, so um, the social emotional uh, literature now for 30 years has really been showing in randomized control study the whole business that when this school gets it and this school doesn't, one flourishes as a school, even the teachers, and the other one less so, right? Whether it's days missed in school, whether it's um, violence at school, teacher um, satisfaction, teacher illness. It's amazing. Again, it's a controlled, you know, this, this province or this county did it, this one didn't. And it changes, you know, significantly based on this K through 12 curriculum. So we know it works. And I just read that over 50% of schools in the United States now have bought or used uh, some kind of the SEL, Social and Emotional Learning Curriculum, that's available, which is very exciting. And teachers love it when they learn it because they can see the difference in discipline and how people uh, treat one another in the in the classroom. So I think we're all starting. It just makes sense, right? It's a common sense thing. I think how to go about it looks like it's going to take more time, like that little example I learned, I, I used earlier. There's this kerfuffle between two, um, two of the athletes, and you decide to get them together and talk through their feelings and their thoughts and their stories in their head about one another and then start to under, you know, get a better understanding of one another and their own motivations. It looks like it takes more time. But in terms of preventing the problems long time, of enmity on the team or a lack of uh, sportsmanship, you're saving time, whether it's in a classroom or whether it's on a sports team. And in terms of the flourishing, you know, one uh, heuristic or one rule of thumb is that um, mental health exists on a on a continuum, sort of a bell curve, with some really flourishing, some in the middle range, some languishing, and some clearly already diagnosable. And it's uh, you know up to forty percent of samples of teenagers can be diagnosed with something: depression, anxiety, uh, ADHD, learning problems, the whole business. So it, as as adults working with young people, we always want to be nudging their mental health to the flourishing end because anything can happen. They can have a severe injury, uh, loss of a parent, uh, an accident, uh, all kinds of disappointments come our way. So we don't have much of a buffer. I think we need to start with you know the flourishing range and know that there'll be some you know trials and tribulations along the way inevitably, right? Mm -hmm. But to start with a kind of a mixed bag and then they didn't make the team, and then they got an injury, you're moving into potentially, you know, as you know, suicidality pretty quickly 
if they're just barely ha- hanging on uh, as they come to the team, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of at-risk people that come onto a team, and, and coaches sort of have a hint of it, but some of them want to stay. Oh, that's too personal. I don't get into their private lives. But you know, the more you read retrospective stories about uh, youth that fall into trouble, whether it's violence, whether it's um, uh, mental health problems, we can't afford to think that, oh, I'll just deal with them on the court, right? Mm-hmm. Not as coaches that spend as many hours as, as you do mm-hmm. with the young person. And in college, then they're removed from their families. So it's not a blank slate. They all come with some kind of history of um, higher or lower realms of trauma or uh, toxic stress or mental health challenges. Mm-hmm. Well, for our listeners who want to learn more about the topics we've discussed here today, you, know, you can visit Dr. Kastner's website where there are videos. There's a link to a TED Talk and excerpts from her book, and I encourage people to do that. There is a lot of great material on there um, that can be found at laurakastnerphd.com, and we will share that link as well. Um, Dr. Kastner, thank you for graciously making time to have this conversation with us today. And to send us on our way, I wanted to ask you one last question that I just read in Melinda Gates's new book. What do you know now in a deeper way than you knew it before? I definitely know now, I'm embarrassed to say it took me a while to learn, the power of compassion. Mm-hmm. That uh, empathy is uh, tuning into the feeling of the other person. But that can mean that I cry because you cry, and I might not be that useful to you. Compassion comes from the Latin word, you know, compasser, which is with suffering. But if a coach, um, or I should speak to myself since you asked me, if I absolutely try to zoom into the experience of the young person, they could be doing horrendous things that brought them into my office, right? But instead of thinking about that, I say, how does this 17-year-old come to have those behaviors? What do I need to understand? Because they're doing the best they can, given their emotional state, their developmental status, and whatever little bundle of DNA and life experiences that they've had. How can I appreciate that they're doing the best they can and they need to do better? So I, I think the power of compassion, no matter what the problem is, they're doing the best they can and they want to do better, How do they come to this place that I'm in this relationship with them right now? The power of compassion. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm